Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, coming to you from the third day of the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show outside Washington, D.C., this year in person. Later in the program, key takeaways from all three days of this important air and space conference. But first, it is my honor to welcome today on the program the 26th Secretary of the United States Air Force, the Honorable Frank Kendall. Sir, thanks so very much for joining us. Hello, Vago. It's always great to be with you. Thank you very much. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. It is, it is not a show unless you and I have an opportunity to talk, and I'm glad we're restarting that uh, tradition. I, I want to start with uh, China. You know, you, uh, you said that you were being somewhat flipped by saying China, China, China was your uh, priority when you went up on the hill. Uh, but you, it's a message that you've been driving uh, forward. Obviously, the chief has been, and for a military organization, it's absolutely critical to be clear about what your threats are so you can focus on them. What changed in the last four years from when you were ATNL and in the job and tracking this and talking about China almost incessantly throughout the eight years you were there and now? What are the changes that you've seen that particularly worry you? Uh, thanks, Vago. I've, I've always been concerned. Well, for 10 years, I've been concerned about the... Uh, NA-access area denial capability they've been developing. The, the biggest thing that's happened in the last four years happened just recently, at least as far as public information is concerned, and that's the expansion of their nuclear force. Uh, the photos that have been in the, in the media that show their silos they're building uh, d- demonstrate an intent to dramatically expand their, their nuclear force, and I think that's very concerning. What, what are the specific elements of that are of particular concern, and what is the totality of the other capabilities that they're demonstrating? We're seeing Chinese activity undersea that's surprising us. We're seeing Chinese activity in cyberspace that's surprising us, in the disinformation sphere. I mean, we seem to be more surprised than not, which is probably not where we want to be. What is sort of the totality of this picture that you think is different, and how do we need to think about this as a broader systemic challenge as opposed to a whole bunch of eaches? Well, the big picture-wise, I think that they've largely continued in the direction that they started some time ago. You remember when I came back into government in 2010, started talking about their uh, precision weapons, uh, some of their ISR systems, uh, the things they were building, which were clearly intended to keep us out of their region, if you will. Um, So those have continued, and they've extended the range of some of those systems with newer systems. They've also continued to extend their capabilities in space and counter space as they try to go after some of our assets there. Uh, and cyber, of course, has always been a part of the, uh, the portfolio of things that they're investing in. So I'm not terribly surprised by any of those. They've made continue to make progress in those areas. Uh, I think it's pretty clear at this point that their, their ambitions are more global. Uh, that's true in the economic and political spheres just as much as it is in the military. And I think that the trends that have been in place for some time are, are discontinuing there. The nuclear side, as I mentioned, is, is disconcerting. It, uh, it, it was always in some way reassuring to me that China had made a gut judgment to keep a relatively small, uh, fairly survivable nuclear force uh, as a deterrent, and that their ambitions didn't go beyond that. And I thought that was actually a prudent policy on their part. 
Uh, as far as the United States is concerned, if we could negotiate with the Russians to get down to a similar level, I think that would be a very good thing for, for all of us. So it's, it's bothersome that China's uh, changed direction with regard to the nuclear force. You also mentioned uh, the, the prospect of China putting nuclear weapons in space. Uh, you told reporters that you didn't have any specific evidence and this was a surmise on, on your part, but this is a concept that the United States certainly had uh, and the Soviet Union debated at some point during the Cold War uh, as well. And China is not part to any of these international agreements to limit uh, weapons in space, for example. And if you look at 500 terrestrial silos with 10 MIRVs on each one, you're looking maybe at 5,000, right? I mean, that's a very complicated problem to try to solve. The United States Air Force was a repository of cutting-edge nuclear strategic thinking uh, at all levels of the organization. And even when you were in the United States Army, uh, the United States Army was governed by nuclear doctrine. Some of this, Bud Forster is one of the true giants of American nuclear thinking, and he was an army officer, mm -hmm. right? Um, how do we need to think about the nuclear enterprise, to think nuclear, especially with adversaries, that if they have weapons in space, that changes the defense and strike dynamic in an extremely dramatic way, given that all of our satellites are looking for something to take off and hit another target, not just drop right out of space on our heads. Yeah, I don't have any evidence that uh, the Chinese are trying to put nuclear weapons in space. There's a technological capability that they would have to put either nuclear or conventional weapons in space. Uh, and I really can't go very far beyond that. Uh, but they're, they're opening up their, their range of capabilities to include global strike uh, of whatever nature, right? And I think that's something that should concern us as well. Uh, the U.S. depends upon a number of high-value assets in the region. It also depends on a number of high-value assets that are fixed locations uh, in CONUS and other places. So if China expands its ability to strike those things. Uh, and, of course, you know, there's always the problem of ambiguity, right? Uh, if, for whatever reason, they did choose to strike something, even with a conventional weapon, there would be a lot of uncertainty about what type of weapon that was until it arrived. How do we need to change how we think about nuclear, though, right? I mean, what are some of the things we have to do to rebuild those skills, whether it's through exercises, whether it's through just thinking? It's a muscle we haven't been exercising because we've sort of more focused on what the Russians are doing, and we've had strategic limitation agreements, you know, but we're going to an era, for example, where the Russians are developing hypersonic nuclear weapons. Uh, that's in order to get through our missile defenses. They're doing the Poseidon uh, unmanned nuclear torpedo, which is a terrifying weapon if you think about it, but a very logical one. And even if you look at it from a Chinese perspective, they were presenting us with conventional problems that was going to drive us to a nuclear solution, and they were like, okay, we have to beef up our nuclear capabilities to defend against them. What do we have to do in terms of the nuclear thinking from the top of the service at your level all the way down to the airman level and across the joint force? Well, first of all, there's a nuclear posture review going on right now in the, in the, uh, in the department and administration, and I don't want to get ahead of that. I think a lot of those issues are being thought about there. I mean, we've been on a, a path that's been driven by the age of our systems and the fact that they have to be replaced if we're going to remain viable uh, to, to modernize our force, to recapitalize our force, and we're well down the road to do that. But I, I'm a, you know, product of the Cold War to a large extent. I grew up, you know, in the 50s and 60s when the threat of nuclear war was very present. and. There were a couple of incidences throughout the 50-odd years of the Cold War when we got pretty close, uh, too close, I think, uh, for comfort, to put it very simply. And that's a scary prospect. After the Cold War ended, I think the humanity should have breathed a collective sigh of relief that we had avoided a nuclear uh, exchange over all those years and that we could go to a posture that was 
uh, stable and safer for everybody. So it would be nice if we could, uh, it, as Russia's become more threatening and has done some of the things that you mentioned, uh, yeah, that's problematic and we need to work on that. The problem gets much more difficult if China goes down the same sort of a path. So I, I think, frankly, we should all be talking to each other, thinking carefully about the strategic stability implications of these developments, both the Chinese and the Russian ones, and trying to ensure that uh, globally we all get to a posture where we, we have reasonable deterrence, but uh, the threat of a, an inadvertent or mistaken or, uh, for whatever reason, a nuclear exchange that nobody wants to see and is nobody's interest, uh, has no very little risk of occurring. And I'm worried that some of these developments, both in Russia and in China, are pushing us in the wrong direction. Uh, that said, we are still embarking on a generational nuclear modernization effort on the tactical side of things. Uh, in the Air Force and in the Navy, we're looking at a, a ground-based strategic deterrent, the bomber. Um, are you satisfied we're heading in the right direction overall in the nuclear enterprise and at least rebuilding and modernizing those skill sets? Yeah, the triad has stood us in uh, well for a long time. I mean, we have had quite a long period of, 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 of stability. And so, the, and the triad has served as well as, as a, an effective deterrent. So I, I think proceeding down the course of modernizing those systems, recapitalizing them, because uh, the age of existing systems is, is wise at present. I'm hopeful that we can get to a, uh, a safer posture with less reliance on nuclear weapons in the future, but that needs to be done in conjunction with the other powers who have those weapons. Um, let me take you to the question of the POM. You said that, uh, you know, right when you took this job, roughly about uh, two months ago, uh, an action-packed two months, uh, that you asked for changes to be made to the Air Force's long-range budget. You don't want to get specific on that. But is, when we see it, are these going to be major muscle movements, minor muscle movements? I mean, at the, at the end of the day, you know, we're told, hey, you know, look for this, and sometimes it's a little bit underwhelming. Is this going to be something that's going to be clear uh, for both friend and foe who's looking at this to say, like, wow, okay, they are they are putting the helm over uh, a little bit, uh, given that you're a sailor also. <laughs> well, i got a couple of things. One is I did come in and look at the, uh, the Air Force's POM, and I did make some changes. They were done to be consistent with the guidance that the Department of the Air Force had had from the Department of Defense, uh, physical guidance as well as policy guidance. Uh, and I said a, a, uh, one of my pieces of guidance that I put out was that if it doesn't intimidate China, uh, you have to look very carefully at whether you still need to do it or not. So I, I uh, can't go into specifics, as you indicated, and this is the beginning of a process within the Department of Defense and, and with the administration that will culminate when we submit our budget in uh, uh, February, roughly. So I'm afraid you're going to have to wait for uh, details on whether there are any major shifts uh, for that to occur. There is some frustration up on the Hill, uh, and you and I have talked about this, that uh, the Air Force does not ask for more money. I know that there is departmental guidance on this, but the point that they make is, well, the Navy and the Army have no problem asking us for more money, whereas the Air Force is trying to do this. Uh, you know, the term Boy Scout was used, you know, saying, like, look, we're going to live within our means, trade things off, buy new things, and try to do it within the confines of our own budget. I think uh, Commandant Berger has tried to use that same mindset, which, which has been frustrating for some. Why not ask Congress for more money? Um, you know, I was talking to a staffer who said, hey, we're willing to make money available to them if they just ask us for it uh, to cover uh, some of these spots and actually accelerate some of these modernization efforts. How do you respond to folks on the Hill who tell you that? Because I know that there are members who've told you that as well. Well, my mantra uh, that I've been using since I came on board in the Air Force is one team, one fight. 
And the one team, uh, a team that I'm on, is the Department of Defense and the administration team. And the president will submit a budget, and uh, it will be my duty to support that budget. You know, unless I have such fundamental differences with it that I cannot, in which case I should resign my position. So I, 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 we all need more money. We all would like more money. Uh, but there has to be a balance struck between you know, risks and defense and expenditures there and, and things that we need to do in other parts of the federal budget and in terms of the economy itself as a whole. So uh, my job is to advocate for, try to get the best plan possible put together for the Air Force, advocate for that plan within the DOD, uh, and then do, uh, hopefully, uh, an acceptable level of risk for me and for the department at whatever number the president finally decides to recommend. And that's, that's what I should do, and I, that's what I intend to do. Um, let me ask you uh, about uh, both uh, speed. You know, you've said speed for its own sake is not a good thing if you don't have the direction uh, right. Uh, and the second uh, debate is about what's relevant and what's not relevant. I think Dr. Hicks is doing a great service by moving away from legacy. It could be a legacy capability that's important. How do we need to think about speed? How do we need to think about what's relevant and what's not relevant? Because depending on what you look at it, everything's relevant, in which case actually nothing is relevant, right? How do we need, what's the mindset we need as an Air Force team and as a joint team to move faster, but move faster in the right kinds of ways, and how to think about relevancy ultimately? Because not everything is relevant. Uh, good question. And I think, first of all, we have a lot of equipment that we've had for quite a long time. We've got a very aged fleet uh, of aircraft, for example, the average age is approaching 30 years. The, many of the things we've purchased over the last few decades have been for the war on terror. Uh, they're for operation in a permissive environment. And we're not going to be able to operate in a permissive environment against a stressing threat, either Russia or China. So uh, we need to move towards things that are more relevant to the fights that uh, we have to deter and, if necessary, win. So that means, you know, within any constrained budget, that, which is reasonable by any metric, uh, we're going to need to get rid of some of the stuff that we've bought for the war on terror and that we have is just older equipment that we've had for a very long time uh, and move towards things that are, are more uh, capable and more relevant to a fight against a, uh, a pure competitor, if you will. So that's what we need to do. Uh, and I understand the reluctance of people to you know, have things come out of their districts and so on. I made a pretty strong point about this in my keynote speech here at the uh, AFA conference. But it's a necessity um, that we must move in this direction and we must move as quickly as we can. The big job for, for leadership, people in leadership positions like myself, is to help figure out what that direction is. What is it we need to purchase and get on with that? And my metric, ultimately, in terms of speed, is meaningful military capability in the hands of operators. I don't think our, our adversaries are intimidated by uh, things that are in development or things that are being experimented with. They're, they're intimidated by things that are, are ready to be used against them. And so we need to get to that as quickly as we can. And I think in my, my observation is that for the last few years we've done a number of things which don't move us as efficiently and effectively down the road to real capability as, as they should. At what point do you think that deterrence breaks down, right? You're, you're able to deter, and what's our window? Because if you look at it, if China begins to conclude, hey, wait a minute, th these guys really aren't moving the needle, and they're not likely to move the needle faster than I'm moving it, especially in, you know, in highly classified sy systems that may surprise us, 
then they may actually miscalculate. How, how wide do you think our window is? You know, you've talked about the urgency that we're completely out of time and we need to really put the hammer down in order to, to be able to do this. And yet lawmakers still are talking about keeping A-10s around, for example. I mean, the joke I made is the B-21 will pass an A-10 on its way out to the boneyard, right? How do we do this and how large is the deterrent window that should brace folks and, and focus their attention on the task at hand? Well, first of all, deterrence is uh, largely a matter of perceptions. And deterrence is effective if the other side believes that, that A, you have the capability to fight, and B, you will fight. I don't think anyone should be confused about the fact that the U.S. has the capability to fight and the will to fight today. Uh, what I'm concerned about is the trends over time. And as a person who spent most of my life in weapon system development, you know, I can look out five or even ten years and predict with reasonable confidence what we'll have in our inventory based on what, we're, what we have now in earlier stages of development. And so that's really the one that, that I'm worried about. We need to get started with uh, things that we're going to field in quantity and that are going to provide a very obvious and direct deterrent. Uh, but no one should be confused about the capability or the will of the United States uh, at this time to defend its interests. What do you think the budget outlook for defense is going to look like? Because if you look at it, there's a $3.5 trillion spending package. We're at a debt, virtual debt default door. Are you convinced that there's going to be enough money for national security? Obviously, President Biden has said that. But or is there a concern that actually the budgetary outlook could get darker? I mean, is there a backup plan at the end of this? I mean, I hate asking. It's almost like the same question I was asking you for 10 years when you were ATNL. First of all, um, I'm absolutely confident that the president will ask for a budget that he thinks is adequate to protect the country. Uh, even under sequestration, President Obama always did that, and I never had any doubt that he would. Any president is going to ask for the amount of money that he thinks is necessary to keep us secure, and that's what this administration will do. I'm 100 percent confident of that. Uh, so I, I, the Congress will do what it will do, and there will be some sort of a political compromise at the end of the day and hopefully we'll have the resources that we need. I'm, I'm reasonably confident that we will. What's very hard for us to deal with is the uncertainty about what those amounts will be. You know, we're looking at a situation right now with the Congress where they may or may not increase the money substantially that we, uh, that we requested, and not knowing what's going to happen there makes it very difficult for us to plan. So it would be helpful if there was more uh, predictability in what the Congress is going to do. There is um, historic frustration. When you look at the Air Force budget, you think it's the number one budget. But the problem is vast chunks of the Air Force budget go to doing stuff for everybody else, whether it's the National Reconnaissance Office or otherwise. And so as a consequence, people look at a big number and they go, wow, the Air Force is getting a lot of money. Look at those zoomies. They're clever. On the other hand, it's for foundational utility services that all the other services use as, as really the backbone service for U.S. military power. Is it time to budget differently for this so that there is a blue line that is Air Force capability, just like there is a Navy capability and an Army capability where the budgets are a lot simpler? Is it time to peel that amount out and budget more fairly so the Air Force actually has the resources uh, to do what it needs to do? And I have one last question after that. Uh, well, I'll go first of all, fairness doesn't have anything to do with it. This is about capabilities that the nation needs. And we should be allocating to the Air Force what, what's appropriate allocation so the Air Force can do its missions. It is true that there is a significant fraction of uh, the Air Force's overall budget that actually is, as you call it, pass-through money that goes to other parts of the federal government. 
that's pretty widely understood. And I, and I think, quite frankly, we just need to communicate very clearly uh, that that's the case. But the whole proportional allocation fairness argument isn't very compelling to me. What is compelling is the question of whether or not the Air Force, the Department of the Air Force, has the assets that it needs to do its job effectively. And as long as we can make that case, and I'm, I'm not terribly concerned about the existence of the so-called pass-through, uh, but it's up to us to communicate uh, the, the, the fact of what the Air Force's budget is act actually buying and whether it's adequate enough for us to perform our missions. Um, last question. Uh, is it time for another Key West uh, discussion? If you look at it, um, there are long-range strike questions being raised uh, in terms of the U.S. Army's um, capability developments and long-range fires. That's a very good thing that could be very useful for the joint team, but raises questions. And especially on air and missile defenses, the Army and the Air Force's job is to provide that for the Air Force, and both of the services are finding they don't have enough air and missile defenses for their own uh, uses, much less being able to develop uh, defend air force bases. At the end of the day, how do we need to think this through? Because there are some very, very big challenges. Otherwise, you'd better be getting a lot more money in order to build air and missile defenses to protect your installations, which are forward and absolutely critical to taking the fight to the adversary. Well, you, the, the key thing in what you just said is the total capabilities of the department. It's not as much which service has which roles or missions. It's whether or not we have the full set of capabilities that we need. And with regard to the Air Army's long-range strike, I'm perfectly comfortable with the Army having a long-range strike capability. It can benefit the Air Force as it conducts combined operations, joint and combined operations. So, again, I, I, I think that these things are, I won't call them superficial, uh, but I think it's the, the fundamentals of what military capability we have and whether we have the right mix of capabilities in, in any service is what we really should be focused on. You know, that all said, um, you know, I think it would be possible to have such a conversation and maybe do a different allocation. But at the end of the day, I don't think that's the critical thing. Are you worried about a debt default or budget discussions that lead to a shut, shutdown or automatic triggers that could put you in the horrible situation of living for another decade with a BCA-like monster wrapped around your neck? Now, Bago, as you know, I lived under sequestration for several years, and it was something of a nightmare. So I hope we don't go back into a situation like that. Um, uh, I'm watching this. We're going to have to start getting serious about a shutdown pretty soon if the Congress doesn't show some, uh, some movement. Uh, we'll see what happens. I've been through shutdowns. I've been through situations where we had to furlough people. Uh, they're very inefficient. They're demoralizing. Uh, they're, they're not good for the country. And I think, quite frankly, it would be uh, uh, refreshing to see the Congress just step up and do what it needs to do and what obviously needs to be done, which is continue to fund the government and to expand the uh, debt ceiling. And we'll see what happens. We will be prepared for whatever happens and do the best we can. Sir, Fairwinds following seas, thanks very much uh, for all the time and looking forward to continuing the dialogue. Thanks a lot. Always great to talk to you, Vago. Thank you. And a word from our sponsors, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. And joining us now for key takeaways on this third day of the Air Force Association's Air Space Cyber Conference and Trade Show is Steve Trimble, the defense editor at Aviation Week and Space Technology, otherwise known as Av Week, who is also a contributor uh, to this August to the August organization's Check Six uh, podcast and one of the the best aviation reporters and defense reporters on the planet. Steve, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. 
Uh, it is uh, a pleasure uh, having you on. Three days, um, dozens of hours of briefings. Uh, here we are at the end of this uh, great show, in person, finally, mm. uh, for 2021. What, from your standpoint, were the key takeaways? What are the things that sort of jumped out at you uh, over the course of these three days, whether in uh, you know statements from senior leaders or from what you picked up on the show floor? Well, sure. I mean, on the show floor, the big, uh, the big reveal or announcement was Lockheed Martin's new uh, bridge tanker candidate, the LMXT. Seeing the configuration, obviously, it's the A330-200 MRTT, but they showed us some new details about it, how they want to configure it with 26,000 pounds more fuel than the A330 uh, MRTT, and um, with uh, JADC2 mission stations, three consoles in the back. Which is I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the idea of every tanker flying around with three uh, JADC2 or sort of um, you know uh, uh, battle management stations. But but it but it does harken to what you know Jim Roach and John Jumper yeah, were talking yeah. about in Smart Tanker. Smart right? Tanker, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And you know, um, you know, if you have 140, 160 of those, and having you know, do you have you know battle managers assigned to each one? Do you have a pool that just do it? when you need it, you know, and how do you get them there when, when, when you need it. So trying to figure out how they're going to do that. But uh, that is one of the questions that the Air Force asked in the RFI uh, was how many, how can you accommodate uh, these things? So clearly the Air Force is interested in that, but they haven't defined the requirements and uh, nor have they defined an acquisition strategy yet. So um, it's all in the trade space right now, and this is what uh, Lockheed is proposing. Of course, they would propose things that play to their strengths, uh, you know, uh, and diminish those that don't. They don't have a main cargo door, you know, so they're limited to six pallets in the in the belly versus 18 pallets in the KC-46 because it does have a main main deck cargo door. Uh, now Airbus, sorry, and Lockheed uh, could uh, could add a main cargo uh, main cargo door. Um, uh, it would take some extra development, and um, there are some issues with that with the A330 just because of the way it was designed. Uh, but there, that is available. There is a commercial freighter version with that. But um, anyway, so that's the. Um, that's the, the tanker thing. And I expect bridge tanker, that's going to just dominate our lives for the next five right. years. Um, this takes me back to 1996, and I was interviewing Mickey Blackwell, who was uh, chief of Lockheed Aeronautics at the time. And we were talking about actually um, why Lockheed uh, shouldn't partner with Airbus to be their American partner. Uh, at the time when Mickey was concerned about uh, how Boeing was able to use its massive commercial revenue uh, to underwrite its defense investments. And he was saying, look, I mean, you know, if fair is going to be fair, uh, we should be doing something with Airbus uh, and, and really be able to do that. And I thought that that was really interesting, you know, sort of a, a concept that was 30 years. And I remember at the time the Air Force, uh, Airbus guys were like, listen, we, this is just Lockheed trying to uh, invade us, um, which I think is kind of funny how the stories come full circle after, you know, like 25 years. Indeed, yeah. Well, I think pricing and commercial pricing versus Boeing and, and Lockheed is going to be really interesting in, in the bridge tanker competition. I think it was the decisive factor in KCX 10 years ago. Um, so we'll see how it uh, works out in this case. Um, so on other things that I saw happening, I mean, Kindles kind of stole the show with uh, delivering a very uh, a passionate warning about Chinese capabilities and how the U.S. Air Force has to respond to that and Space Force. Uh, and then, um, you know, his, his also his new perspective on, on modernization. Um, now, I mean, he absolutely recommitted and almost doubled down in a way 
uh, to uh, the, the, the modernization strategy, the need for innovation, and need to do it as quickly as possible. But it does seem like he's going to come at, come to this uh, issue with a very different perspective and different uh, philosophy about how to how to achieve that innovation. Um, you know. Um, Specifically, I mean, he was very dismissive, uh, critical, uh, really, of of the uh, his predecessor's strategy on ABMS, uh, and you know, sort of these demonstrations, kind of open-ended demonstrations uh, that they that uh, the Air Force had had been doing, called the on-ramp process with ABMS, uh, Advanced Battle Battle Management System, you know, kind of seeing what would work and what didn't work, but really, really no sort of follow-on. Um, uh, you know, for the, even for the things that did work, nothing in the budget to kind of push right. it. In, you know, um, and, and one of the criticisms from industry was this was a lot like the Army's, um, you know, network integration uh, evaluations that seemed to go on forever and became a little bit of a science project. And I know some people in industry were looking at this and saying, look, I mean, you know, there are some pretty easy ways for us to try to get there. I mean, we don't really need to be as open-ended about, you know, how we're going and, and admiring the problem as opposed to working a solution. Yeah, and I think I think Kendall is, is you know, as you would expect, given his career and, and his, you know, his stated, you know, preferences and background over that career, it, it, we're going to go back to something more conventional, uh, more disciplined, um, um, I, you know, I, you know, I'm hesitant to, you know, just immediately label that as conservative. Um, I, I think he is dedicated to innovation, and um, but just doing it in, in, in perhaps a different way. Um, he always yeah. he always likes to say like what's the problem you're trying to solve right yeah. and so yeah. that I think might be uh, you know something that might be guiding this in terms of okay well look what what is it the capability and what's the problem we're trying to solve right right but then I mean you know they've got a lot of problems and they've they've got to figure out how to kind of reorganize themselves and re-equip themselves sort of midstream uh, with a lot of um, stakeholders and legacy interests uh, within the services and Congress. And it's, it's a very tricky uh, problem to solve on the fly. So, And one of the things that you've uh, been doing reporting on this week uh, is what Secretary Kendall said about the prospect of the Chinese putting nuclear weapons in space. Mm. Um, that's a conversation that we had with General Saltzman. Um, we talked a little bit to uh, General Hynote uh, about um, c certainly the more contested environment of what the future of air power is. Um, and we did talk, as folks know earlier in this program, to Secretary Kendall about uh, this new nuclear age and the, and the threats uh, we, we face. What did you make of those comments? Um, because the United States does not have any capability to protect against anything like that. And the Chinese actually, because they don't belong to a lot of these protocols, could actually do what they want, irrespective of whether or not the United Nations has, you know, language or they may have signed something. I mean, what, what, what are, how do you see this, the problems with it, the potential solutions? Because it's a vexing, big, big issue. Well, this, um, what Kindle said this week was uh, that China was, uh, you know, um, may seek the capability to uh, attack uh, globally the planet from, from space. Um, he he elaborated on that um, by uh, explaining he meant um, that they they have that you know there is a potential that they may um, move towards a, a fractional orbital bombardment system um, that uh, was well known in the Cold War as a as a Soviet concept 
Um, and uh, that, I think we had something similar, though, right? I mean, we had rods from God as well at one point. Right, and brilliant pebbles. And uh, I mean, this, this idea, uh, well, except that that was actually truly orbital. Um, in this case, it's a fractional orbital system. So the idea would be that you would launch an uh, orbital class launcher, uh, multi-stage, and then the, and the final stage wouldn't complete a, a full orbit. Uh, as it reached a certain area where it could move into a target, it, uh, the the last stage would fire a retro rocket to slow it down, and uh, uh, but it would only be at the at at most 150 kilometers, uh, you know, so just slightly above the the Kármán line uh, that defines the boundary of space. And after it fires the rockets, then uh, the warhead could uh, re-enter the atmosphere and have a very unpredictable trajectory. Um, and it, uh, the potential is also that it wouldn't have to, um, like an ICBM uh, from China or from the Soviet Union, come over the polar ice cap where we have all our early warning um, systems arrayed and postured uh, and waiting for that to happen. Instead, they could uh, launch it through um, Antarctica uh, uh, and through the southern hemisphere into uh, kind of the soft underbelly of the homeland where our, our, our early warning systems are weakest. Um, so that was a concept the Soviets looked at uh, but weren't able to accomplish uh, during the Cold War. Uh, it turns out, I, I was doing some research very late last night actually trying to figure this out. In 1992, two Stanford researchers, including one who had previously been uh, a senior member of the Chinese ballistic missile program under uh, you know the Zhao Enlai re regime in the 1970s, wow. uh, published a, a paper about a similar program that China attempted uh, at Zhao Enlai's direction. He was the premier at the time in China, uh, starting in 1965. That program was canceled in 1973 after what they described it as endless technical challenges. Um, and also a warming of relations between the United States and China at that, at that point. So, uh, but in that case, that what they were looking at was taking a two-stage DF-5, adding a third stage to it, calling it uh, DF-6, to make it orbital. But that third stage would have this retro-rocket capability to re-enter the atmosphere with the payload um, on this unpredictable trajectory, giving them a, a capability not unlike, um, you know, what, what, what the goal of a hypersonic light vehicle, like the Russian Avangard is you know, uh, make it very difficult, one, for the early warning, season, uh, early warning systems to even know you're there. But even if they do pick you up, I mean, you have this cross-range maneuver capability so that it's, it's really difficult to pinpoint where the trajectory is going to take it. Um, and this, of course, doesn't, you know, we, do, we don't know exactly where Frank Kendall was coming from with this suggestion. Uh, he doesn't explain um, the analysis or the, the sources of this information that suggests that he, he you know, that made him, that compelled him to warn about this. Um, we do he, know. He, when, he, when he was talking to us, he said, well, I'm, you know, that's a surmise, right? That, that that is what he's concerned about is that something that they could do, if I, if I recall correctly, his language. Right. Well, and I, 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 I suspect that he's not just sort of, I mean, I'd be surprised anyway if, if he was just sort of just throwing that out into the air is just something that he just came up with. Um, I, I suspect there's probably something behind the classified curtain that's telling him that the, that this is a possibility, a real possibility, uh, perhaps. Um, and it, it, it doesn't come in a vacuum, right? I mean, we've, uh, there's just been this string of disclosures. I mean, there was the ICBM silos that basically was caught on open source intelligence uh, 
and confirmed by DOD officials. Um, there was the, uh, the U.S. Uh, arms uh, control negotiator uh, in, um, in, in Switzerland uh, back in June saying that China has their own Buravesnik, uh, right, uh, a nuclear-powered cruise missile. Um, and uh, before then, Northern Command, in their written testimony about a year and a half ago, said that China was working, was testing a hypersonic glide vehicle for an ICBM DF-41 class um, missile, not unlike um, the Avangard uh, with uh, uh, the Russian ICBM. So, I mean, there's been this sort of staggering, you know, sort of march of of disclosures about uh, China's nuclear ambitions, and they keep. Um, uh, you know, they keep getting more and more serious and concerning. Uh, and of course, all of this happens uh, against the backdrop, uh, we can't forget, of a nuclear posture review um, that is taking this sort of sweeping assessment of our nuclear modernization programs that have been in place really since 2012 uh, and then expanded slightly under the Trump administration in 2018. So, um, you know, I, I can't, I, I wouldn't say that one probably is not completely. Um, disassociated from the other um, at this point. Uh, we, we know that GBSD, the ground-based strategic determinant replacement for the Miniman 3, um, there's a lot of questions uh, in politically um, about where, uh, where that's needed, how much of it's needed, when it's needed, if it's needed. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, th at the, as that debate comes, we're getting a lot of information now about what China has and what they're up to. The, one of the things to remember, though, is they actually, I mean, the latest intelligence is they just have 200 to 350 warheads, um, you know, right now. Right. And so, uh, the, you know, the question is how many, um, how many can they possibly make? Uh, over the next several years to really change the uh, nuclear dynamic uh, w w with the United States. Although some of these sort of extreme capabilities like a FOBS um, or an HGV uh, can give them uh, perhaps a, a qualitative uh, edge or advantage uh, in certain ways um, that, um, uh, you know, may go beyond just the normal numbers. So. Uh, well, I mean, I wouldn't underestimate China's ability to produce anything. It has cutting-edge scientists. It's not the 1970s. There aren't the technological limit limitations of sort of a, you know, sort of a lumbering communist China or a lumbering uh, a communist uh, Soviet Union, right? I mean, so the advantage they have is that they're tied in, dialed in, gone to the best universities, uh, and certainly have a very competent nuclear industry, commercial nuclear industry, off off of which they can they can draw if they want to open the throttles. I mean, I think this is something that makes enormous sense for them because. The conventional problems they were presenting us were going to force us to go increasingly toward nuclear. And I think that they recognized that and said, wow, we have a really a nuclear limitation. Let's beef that up. Uh, although there are some people who look at the ground-based ICBMs as, as sort of a Chinese effort at distraction from fractional systems and things like that that are actually higher payoff if, if, if you look at it. Let me, and I, I should point out, right, I mean, the Russians uh, don't only have avant-garde, they have the Poseidon system, which is actually as terrifying, if not more so, that there's a gigantic nuclear-tipped, nuclear-powered torpedo that would come up estuaries, park itself somewhere, and then just sort of go off without any warning is, is certainly a, a sporty outcome. Um, as we sit here on the bank of the Potomac as River. We sit here, yeah. As we sit here on the, on the deeper banks uh, of the, of the Potomac. Um, we've got a couple of minutes left, but I want to also take you, very few people pay attention as closely as you do to what's going on in 
myriad of classified programs, uh, or, or as best that you can, right? I mean, today we found something that was absolutely fascinating uh, that could be either a uh, test stand for uh, some form of hypersonic uh, jet engine, right? Because you, you obviously want to try to, we'll get to that in just a, a second. Are we making as much progress? Everybody's talking about speed, Steve. But ultimately, if you were a Martian and you came back at sort of four-year centers, it would be very hard for you to see anything we fielded that would change. You know, we talk about China, but the capability is just not being fielded. We know there's an enormous amount going on behind the screen. Are any of these needles moving as quickly as they need to from your standpoint as somebody who has as much visibility into this as any reporter I know? I mean, I mean, clearly not. I mean, you know, if you've seen Russia and China actually field these weapons so far, and we still haven't had a successful hypersonic uh, air-launched hypersonic test yet, uh, the Army's had a little bit more success, but with a 40-year-old, essentially a, a derivative of a 40-year-old hypersonic glide vehicle design, uh, which may not even really be technically a hypersonic glide vehicle. Um, so, I mean, when you think about that in particular, um, but at the same time, I mean, you also have to be careful not to rush these things. And I think that may be why they may have had some trouble so far on, on uh, with the hypersonic air, air breathing weapon concept, for example, or the air launch rapid response weapon. Um, and even perhaps with NGAD, um, you know, you have to wait for the technologies to be ready. And you have to be consistent and fund these you know, sort of the underlying technologies, and there's so many of them to make these things work. Uh, you, it's, it, you can't, you really can't do this overnight, um, or, or or make it a rush job. Um, that's possible in World War II with with you know uh, P-51s and P-38s or even P-80s, but it's. In, in a world where, um, I mean, these systems are so complex and so uh, advanced, uh, it does take time. China and Russia did not take their eye off the ball, essentially, over that 20-year period, um, and the United States did, and so now they're trying to catch up. But, I, 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 you know, rushing it doesn't seem to have helped us so far uh, in that process. And so, you know, it does, and I do hope that Kendall really does take that more disciplined approach a consistent approach. Now he he's not in control of the consistent approach. That has to be come from the administration with the cooperation of Congress, and that's a whole different story, right? So um, yeah, so that's my that's my uh, take on where things are going in, in that world. And what did we see out at uh, Helendale that is so interesting uh, to you? I, I don't know. Um, you know, uh, we've seen other th things that end up being uh, more like a calibration uh, 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 structure uh, for the RCS equipment. And, and Helendale, to explain to the audience what Helendale is and what is it you saw, right? It's a six, six or seven second clip that's uh, on the inter internet. That's right. Uh, uh, just an OSINT, uh, op open source intelligence uh, fellow on Twitter, found something on TikTok. He took the video and it's, it's a picture of, or it's a video, a seven second video clip of uh, a, a, a flatbed truck carrying something that looks uh, quite uh, sixth generation-y um, in the, in the um, air combat world uh, on the back of it. Uh, it, it is uh, his analysis, which I think looks very sound, uh, is that this video was taken at the Hellendale radar crescent radar cross-section test facility, which is, of course, uh, Lockheed Martin's, um, uh, the Skunk Works' uh, uh, facility for checking the stealth uh, characteristics of, of any aircraft or any object, really. 
Um, and you know, this 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 thing looks very advanced. Um, I mean, it, it, you you look at it and you, you kind of scratch your head at you, trying to figure out how would how would how it it would how it would even fly. Um, you know, like I said, it, it could be just a calibration asset. Um, it's really weird that it would be just sort of rolling around the parking lot um, in the middle of the day. Um, Hellendale is not that remote, um, and um, so that automatically makes me a little bit suspicious of it. But I can't really sort of make any uh, heads or tails of, of how it would work. It's a very specific shape, and uh, so I, I, I can't imagine it works as sort of a generic calibration asset. Uh, although I, you know, maybe it is, um, but um, it, it definitely has got my head, it's got me scratching my head and wondering what it could be. If only Jeff Babion would talk more. <laughs> uh, he was great. I just talked to him last month in, at the Skunk Works, and uh, he was uh, uh, he was very uh, you know uh, yeah. uh, talkative. We didn't talk yeah. about that. Uh, and yeah, I, funny. Why uh, didn't he mention that, Jeff? Next time we're we're both going to meet with uh, him and talk about it. It was funny. They did uh, talk about the new facility they're making. They invited reporters out. They talked to them, uh, and then they were saying nothing about the new facility. So I think that's that's hilarious. It does have all the hallmarks of a Skunk Works air aircraft, though. And what I always thought was interesting is depending on what angle you look at it, right? An F-117 either looks very flat, very tall, very triangular, very wide, or you know what I mean? At any angle, it's misleading. So it's not exactly clear, given the angle you're looking at, that you completely yeah. understand what that shape is exactly. Well, and, and there's certainly a sort of a dip at the leaning edge of the wing root that, you know, it really reminds me of the SR-71, this very similar sort of thing on the chine. Um, but, um, you know, I, I don't know what, it, or even when it was uh, taken. Um, but it's really interesting that it was out there. I imagine somebody's in big trouble. <laughs> or they just made something that looks really cool, and they said, "Hey, just wheel it across the parking lot and put yeah. the video out, and and this will drive Trimble crazy." <laughs> yeah, yeah, put it on a social a Chinese-owned social media app and see what happens. Uh, Steve, thanks very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. And want to have you come back on uh, because you've done some uh, research that I would absolutely love to talk about, about uh, one of the great moments in aviation history. Thanks so much again. Sure. Thank you.